0: You know, a very, very unpopular thing these days is to be a Christian. Uh, It seems like more often than not, uh, especially in the last 15 to 20 years, the moral decay in our society is really being visualized as far as everyday, even political candidates. You know, it wasn't too long ago that if you are a political candidate, candidate, if you were to say, hey, I'm a Christian, I'm going for this, I'm going for that, that in our culture those values were esteemed in such a way that you could maybe win over some people from the church. You could maybe win over certain political parties because people thought this is a, a Christian man. This is a man who's going to lead us in a godly way. But you'll know as well as I know that those days are far gone. That more often than not, to be a Christian in this culture, to be a Christian in this moment in time, is very much a bad thing and not a good thing. That our message, just so you know, ladies and gentlemen, has never been a popular message. That our message that talks about how, you know, that all of these things are sins in the eyes of God, that God, God has commandments, that God has a, a way that He wants us to live, to, to understand that salvation itself for the Christian is not based on our works, but based on the works of Christ, and that all, all of our good deeds are like filthy rags. That's not popular. That is not popular. To be told over and over again that we cannot save ourselves is against the American way, it would seem. And it goes against the culture of our self-help driven industry, which there is a book for that. If you go to the self-help section at Barnes & Noble and look, there are thousands upon thousands of copies. But there is one copy that says you cannot help yourself. It is only Christ who can save us. Only Christ who can redeem us. Only Christ who can change us. And so looking at this, you can see here that when Jesus sends out these men, you would think it's all rainbows and butterflies. You would think if you read this, that first passage there, where Jesus sends out the 12, that when the 12 go, they do miraculous things, you would think, yes, that's what I signed up for. That's exactly what I signed up for. I signed up for the good life, where I go to a house, they welcome me, they take me in. Where I go, and I cast out spirits when I go and do all those things. So what Mark does here, literarily, I don't even know if that's a word, amen, sounds good. Uh, what he does here, as far as English goes, when he, he sandwiches the two accounts here in a beautiful way. Because he takes the story of the disciples being sent, and then he shoves in John being beheaded, and then he capstones it with the disciples coming back and telling Jesus what has happened. And he does this why? Because Mark, inspired by the Holy Spirit, wants you to understand there is a cost. There is a cost to following Christ. There has never been a time where there wasn't a cost. I love what one theologian once said. He said, salvation costs you nothing, but sanctification will cost you everything. That at the end of the day, you getting saved, you bring nothing to the table, but if you want to follow Christ, it will cost you everything on the table. You surrender everything you have to Christ and say, Christ, you're not only the Lord of my salvation, you're the Lord of my marriage, you're the Lord of my family, you're the Lord of my finances, God, you are the Lord of my very life itself. Thinking about the gravity of that. And you see here that the disciples literally are, they are commissioned. They are sent out. That's my first point there. They are sent out. Look at this. Jesus sends them out two by two. Because I don't know about you, but you've got a friend in me, amen? Way before we even thought about the disciples, I don't know about you, when I was a kid, I remember you had Buzz and you had Woody, right? Still to this day, if I watch Toy Story, if Toy Story's on, I'm going to take the time to sit and watch it. Like Esther watched the other day. She didn't make it. I stuck in there, amen? Uh, why? Because I'm committed to it. Because even as a kid, you understand, that, hey, you've got to have a friend out there. And so he sends them out Two by two. And for us reading this, we're like, yeah, because everybody needs a friend. But for the Jewish people reading this, for the church at Rome who was reading what Mark was writing, for the Jew to go out, they sent them out two by two when you brought a message so you could represent the messenger so you had a witness. That's where we kind of get the phrase, can I get a witness? Is there somebody here who can testify what this messenger is saying is true? So you sent them out as a dual partnership where both of them could stand and say, hey, we both believe in the same message. Maybe he sent them out on bicycles and white button-up shirts, amen? <laughs> Some of y'all get that next week. Uh, that's not how he sent them out. But I can tell you what, we can say a lot about people in that religion, but I'll tell you something, they are going out. They are going to different houses, right? So he sent them out two by two, and he sent them out. And I Look what he says here. Look what Jesus does. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread. I don't know about y'all, but all the, all the badges will be out, Amen. Can't take no bread, I'm out. Jesus, no bag, no duffel bag, no purse, no wallet, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals, so no Air Maxes, no Birkenstocks. Amen. These were the these weren't no you know any of that type of stuff, and not put on two tunics. Think about this here. Why in the world would Jesus care about what the brothers are wearing? Have you ever ever stopped to think about details of the Bible list? Like, I'll give you an example. It fits into the story here. Whenever um, the Israelites are leaving Egypt, whenever God rains down plagues on Pharaoh, ten plagues, y'all know what I'm talking about, right? You've seen the prince of Egypt, right? And so you remember those ten plagues that got rained down? The Bible has this really awesome line where God tells them, when you leave, not even a dog will bark at you. Why is God about that? Because God is about the details. But here, the details here fit pretty nicely with that Exodus mandate. Because you remember, we just read the Passover last week. Whenever the Passover is commanded, remember the, the instructions that Moses gives to the Israelites? Have your belt fastened. Have your shoes on. Have your staff at hand. Because we're going at a quick pace. We're going at a quick pace. So the here, he's saying kind of travel light, have everything stripped from you because you're going with God's mission. You're going at God's pace. You're going with God's message. You are God's messengers. You're God's representatives. So how you express yourself says more not only about you, but says something about the one who sent you. It says something about the one who sent you. Look what he says here. Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you, then you will not listen to you. You will shake off the dust of your feet as a testimony against them. So, look what he also says here. He says, When you go to a house, the first one that accepts you, stay there. The first one that hears our message, stay there. So, he said, here's what he's not saying we're not shopping around for the holiday inns, amen? We're not sopping around for the five stars on TripAdvisor. We're not shopping around to find the nicest accommodations because, let me tell you something, he says, I want you to fully understand I am in control of where you're going to be. I'm in control of where you're going to be. So he says, if they reject you and they reject your message, you should shake off your feet. Now, once again, for us sitting here, you're probably thinking, "Uh, Taylor Swift, like, shake it off, shake it off, ooh. I mean, you're thinking, like, what are we going to do there? No, that's not what what he's talking about. He's saying here that for the Jew reading this, whenever they came from Gentile territory, they believed so much in the Promised Land. They believed so much in Jerusalem. They believed so much in the ground of Israel itself that they would take the very dust of the pagan world off and shake it off their feet symbolizing that the ground that they had left was not the promised land. They don't want to pack anything with them that was not in God's promise. So for here, this was a big insult. Why? Because they were saying, guess what? The kingdom of God is not going to be taken to you. That the ki- you're going to miss out on the kingdom here. It's by the, the shaking off of the feet, it's pretty much saying, guess what? If you reject us, you reject our message, you've rejected the ones whose message were on behalf of being sent. Let me tell you something, church. When somebody rejects the Word of God, they don't just reject the Word of God, they reject the, the God whose Word it is. So, I don't, once again, I don't think you understand the gravity of that. That means you've rejected Jesus. That means you've rejected the God of the universe. That means you've rejected the Trinity. That means you've rejected the only one who can save you. The reality of it is, people are in hell today because they've rejected Christ. That's why they're in hell today. It's because they've rejected Christ. Not because they were a bad people. No, hell was not meant for bad people. Hell was meant for rebels. Do you understand that? It's not good people, bad people. No, it's redeemed people and lost people. It's people who have accepted Christ, people who have not accepted Christ. That is the truth of the gospel. That is the truth of the story. He says here to Travel out. I like how this, uh, I read this one commentary. It said it like this. Um, and We need to understand that Jesus' guidelines here were not universal guidelines. This doesn't mean that every missionary that goes out, we just look at them and say, hey, you can't take nothing but one pair of shoes. You can't take nothing but a walking staff. You can't take anything. No, that's, that's, not, that's misinterpreting the Bible. That's poor hermeneutics. It's not saying a canvas, one-all, be-all, that anybody who serves in the mission field cannot have any of these things. That's not what it's about here. But what it is about here is there are some general principles we can glean from the text that are very, very important. And those general principles are that at the end of the day, the missionary and those who are being sent out should not have faith in the person who they're going to, but should have faith in the God who sent them. And to fully understand that God will provide, that God will take care of them, that God's going to watch over them, and to be people who live by faith. Now, when I say that, I don't mean live by stupidity, but I do mean live by faith. Because when you are being sent out, you have other obligations besides just being a missionary. You have other obligations besides just being a pastor. Now, what do I mean by that? I mean, my first calling in life, for me personally, really had a massive shift four years ago. Four years ago, my shift went from being a pastor was my number one priority, to as soon as I got married, guess what? Husband jumped over pastor. Pastor. As soon as me and Emily got married, pastor became a second calling to a primary calling, which is to be a good husband. And then when Esther came along, guess what? Pastor got moved down another rung. Why? Because now I'm a husband and a father, and that means pastor goes down another level. You know, I'm thinking, whoa, 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 what do you mean by that, pastor? I mean, at the end of the day, for me to pastor well, I have to be a father well. For me to be a father whale, I've got to be a husband whale. And so what that means is the number one priority for me in my house is not for me to necessarily take care of the church, but to take care of my own family. Because when I don't take, take care of my family, I'm disqualified to take care of God's family. That's why it's crazy and important we understand that. That my first calling is to pastor my family well, and to pastor our children well, and then to pastor you all well. And this is where the, the many churches get off the rails because they think that you, uh, you are more important than my family is, and that's just not true. Because it cannot be true. Why? Because it's getting the caboose before the engine. And this is why if you read the qualifications of an elder, if you read the qualifications of somebody being called to preach they have to take care of their own household. Because let me tell you something, anybody can stand on a stage for an hour and fake it among the masses, but it takes a very, very special God-called man to do the same thing at home as he does in the house of God. And there's nobody perfect here. Nobody does it well. But you understand the principles here that Jesus sends out the twelve are very much true for us today. That when we go, we need to understand they might reject us. They might reject our message. But we also need to understand this. At the end of the day, the responsibility of the message is on us, but the results of the message are on God alone. Once again, the responsibility of the message is on us. We are expected to go and tell people what Christ has done for them on their behalf. We are expected to go share the gospel. That is on us. But the results of that message are not on me and you, it's on God. God expects us to open our mouth and share, church. The results are on God. The results have always been God. Why? Oh, because you could do everything right, but at the end of the day, guess what? You can't make crops grow. You can't make people get saved. I wish you could. You can't change people. And so look what happens here. And this is where, once again, we, uh, this is a whole other side sermon. I wish I had time to really harp on about I don't. Some of you probably know where I'm trying to go with it. And so they went out and proclaimed the people should repent. They went out and they shared the gospel. Repent. Turn from your wicked ways, turn from your sin, and believe in Christ who has died, to, who is going to die to save you. Turn from your wicked ways and trust in God. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Y'all want to see something cool? This is, only, this is one of the only times in Scripture. There's only one of the time. There's two times in Scripture that anointing somebody with oil is in the text. This is only one of them. Only two times. This is, only, this is one of the only other times in the Bible where it says, anoint people with oil so they may be healed. So look here, though. I want you to follow something here. Because once again, this is a huge movement in our culture. I don't understand it. There's a massive fascination right now with casting out demons and demonizations. And it's just crazy. It's insane right now. If you, if you don't know what I'm talking about, you're probably not paying attention to this stuff. But it's just people are, people are obsessed with it. And now what I mean by this, I mean, notice the order of things. What's more important, us putting oil on people, us casting out demons, or us preaching the gospel? Let me tell you the most important thing. Preaching the gospel. Preaching the gospel will never, ever, ever be a second thing to us. Will never, ever be a third thing to us. And you might be like, whoa, whoa, whoa. what about taking care of people? Let me tell you something. It is a poor trade to clothe a man when his clothes will wear out and withhold the best news of all eternity, the gospel, from him. If we are going to put clothes on people's back, we better put the gospel in their hand. Because let me tell you something. We do never take care of just a physical need without taking care of the most special problem they have, which is a spiritual need. Because they will get hungry again, they will get thirsty again. They close water up. That's not saying we shouldn't do those things, but let me promise you, we do those things with the means of hopefully getting to share the gospel with them. We don't do those things just to do them. No, we do them because we care about their eternity. We do them because we care about their eternity. And it seems to me that people have lost that. People have lost that. And I'm telling you, it has to be about the gospel. It has to be about sharing the gospel. It has to be about us people, us telling people that hell is real, hell is hot, eternity is long, and Christ and God has made a way through his precious son, Jesus, so that you don't have to suffer the fate of rebels. It's the best news ever. But it has a cost. That's point number two. That's the cost. And this is John the Baptist's life. Look what Herod says here, and King Herod of them, this is Herod of Antipas, by the way, this is not Herod the Great. So in the Bible, let me tell you something, and especially in the New Testament, there are four Herods, a lot of Herods, amen, Herod junior, junior, bubba, bubba, I mean, you know what I'm saying, there's a bunch of Herods up in there, Uh, and with that being said, many people, they read the word Herod, and they think, oh, it's the same guy, it's not the same guy. So the same Herod who tried to have Jesus killed, remember that, the Herod that had all the babies killed, you know what I'm talking about? Remember the, Chris, remember the Christmas narrative? You never see on a Christmas card, right? Uh, you know, in Bethlehem, had all the babies born, had all the babies try to get killed, right? That's not this Herod. This Herod is another Herod, right? It's the son of that Herod. And so this Herod is Herod of Antipas. And he is pretty famously known, he's not as famously known as Herod the Great. But Herod had a problem, why? Because he thought his brother's wife was smoking hot. Uh, and not only did he think his wife was smoking hot, but he decided to take his brother's wife. And so he took of his brother's wife, and in our political situation, our polarizing culture, it would probably not be that big a deal. Even today, it probably wouldn't be that big a deal. There'd be tabloids about it, there'd be all kinds of stuff about it. But at this time, guess what? John, the Baptist, held him to the fire and said, you can't do that. You can't commit adultery and be our king. Notice I put quotation marks there. You can't do this. You can't take your brother's wife to be your wife. That is wrong. And so what everybody else is saying, John, let him live his best life. What everybody else is saying, hey, John, what about judge not? It's funny how people quote that first couple of verses, of probably uh, Every unbeliever on the planet knows that verse, judge not. They don't read the rest of the chapter. They just read judge not. They're like, hey, you're not supposed to judge. I'm thinking, have you read the rest of the chapter? Have you read the rest of it? Because the rest of it does not say you're not supposed to judge. If anything, if you're a Christian, guess what? You are under the authority of Scripture. And if you belong to a body of believers, which every Christian should be a part of a church, then you are under the authority of elders and a pastor who has the right to judge you according to God's Word. It's called church discipline, called accountability. And we all have that. We all should have that. Why? Because it's healthy. So all this is going on, and John calls him out. guess what? Herod's like, I'm going to throw you in prison, John. He's like, I don't care. Throw me in prison. So throw him in prison. Not a big deal, right? Then he gets his head chopped off. We just read the story where his literally his daughter-in-law comes in, does this very sexual dance, as far as we can tell from Scripture, looks at Herod and says, uh, you know, Herod looks at her and says, I will give you anything you desire, even half of the kingdom. You know what's funny about that phrase? It's not his kingdom to give. You know what's funny right here? It says, Mark says this, King Herod. It's kind of a joke. Why? Because Herod wasn't much of a king. Why? Because who ruled Jerusalem at this time? Who ruled over the entire uh, Israel empire? Rome. Rome ruled over them. Rome ruled over them and governed them. Herod was there as a puppet. He had no authority. So him saying, I'll give you half of the kingdom, I'm sure one of his assistants said, you can't do that. He thought, uh, yes, I can. Uh, you know what I mean? Like literally, he can't do that. Because he doesn't own anything. So when he says that phrase, it's kind of like, I, I'll give you whatever I got. He got nothing. And so thinking about this, he then is putting a pickle. Why? Because he makes a vow, he makes a promise. I'll give you anything as long as you ask. His daughter in you know, his daughter in law literally comes to her mother and says, Hey, what do you want? She says, What well, I want John's head on a platter. I want his head chopped clean off. His head gets chopped off, guess what? That was a pretty good while ago in the narrative. But why is Mark taking that story and sticking it right here? Because look what happens in the first couple of verses. Once again, there's a lot of breaks here. There's this break where the disciples are sent out. There's a little break where Herod learns who Jesus is, learns a lot about his ministry. Then there's a flashback when Herod has John killed, and at the very bottom we jump back in real time. Make sense? Lost as a ball in high weeds, many of you, amen. Uh, we're going to get there, okay? So look at this. Herod here is talking. He says, when Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. So look, that tells us that John's been dead. So John's been dead. Then they say, why are the miraculous powers at work in him? And others said, he is Elijah. And others said, he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. And when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised from the dead. For it was Herod. So verse number 17 starts a flashback. So Mark really wants you to understand here, look at me. I'm telling you, if you don't get anything else I say, you've got to get this. To know about Jesus and to know all the facts about Jesus, but to acknowledge who Jesus truly is, is not saving faith. Look at me. You can die and know every book of the Bible, know all the Bible verses and never know the author, and you will split hell wide open. Because what did Herod believe? Herod believed Jesus was a prophet. Herod believed he was a man who did miraculous signs. Herod believed a lot of powerful things about Jesus, and he believed a lot of things about John the Baptist. you hear what he said about John the Baptist? He feared him because he was a holy, righteous man. He thought thought a lot of him. You know what's sad today is the amount of church members who will die and have spent their whole lives worshiping their own Jesus and never worshiping the Jesus of the Bible and never having a relationship with real Jesus and having false security in their faith because they know a lot about Jesus, but they don't know Jesus. One of the saddest verses in all of Scripture is in that parable where the, the servants look up at Jesus and say, Lord, did we not do these things for you? Lord, did we not baptize for you? Lord, did we not do this? Lord, did we not do that? And what did Jesus look at them and say? I don't know who you are. I have no idea who you are. This is why it's crazy important, church. This is why it's crazy, crazy important that you understand you cannot inherit faith. Faith cannot be passed down multiple generations. You cannot be born a Christian. that just isn't automatic for you. Like Christianity is not a box you check off, like go to church, baptism, read my Bible, check, 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 check. Because all that is dressed up as works. When at the end of the day, what sets us apart as true biblical Christians who practice biblical Christianity is us relying on the saving power of Jesus and nothing else. Because anything you add to grace cheapens grace and it's no longer grace. To understand here the gravity at stake is I don't want you to ever, ever think, well, Jesus is a great man. Jesus is my life coach. Jesus is a great prophet. No, let me tell you something He's either who He said He was or He's not. And what did Jesus say he was? He said he was the son of God. He said he was the one who was sent to save and redeem those who are lost. He's either everything he said he was or he's nothing he said he was. I'm reminded of the words of C.S. Lewis. He says he's either a liar, a lunatic, or he's the Lord. That's either three L's. You've got to go with he's a liar, he's a lunatic, or he's the Lord. And if he's the Lord, we should live like it. We should live like it. Because for Herod here, he missed it. He had missed who Jesus really was. He had missed it. And he had missed it. Think about this. He had missed it for temporary pleasure. He had rather hold on to his sin because it made him feel good in the moment than to repent of his sins and really understand the length of eternity. Because let me tell you something, church, our message is never popular. I've said that a bunch today because I really want you to understand. Our message is not popular. Think about the things we believe. Think about the things we as, a, we as a body of faith we hold value to, we believe. They are anti against everything in our culture right now. We believe that God makes man and women. Male and female. That's how God makes people. We believe that's, that's how God makes people. There's no other categories out there. It's not up for debate. It doesn't matter what you feel, what you think. We believe God has spoken. Right. Male and female. We believe that, church. We believe that life begins at conception. We believe that life doesn't just, that you, after so many weeks you become a human. We don't believe that after so many months you're a human then. No, we believe that every person that is born, that is conceived, is an image-bearer of God. We believe that there's not a higher class or, or a higher race. We believe that it doesn't matter if you're black, white, it doesn't matter where you're born, where you're raised, that, the race, that every person is an image-bearer of God and should be treated with dignity and respect. We believe that. We believe that men and women are co That's not men above women or women above men. No, we believe that we are all equal. The only thing that's different is we believe that men are more responsible because God holds them in a leadership position as the head of the house. Because in the word of God, when Adam and Eve messed up, God didn't come looking for Eve. He said, Adam, where are you? Because it was Adam's responsibility to lead his family well. Because we believe old school things. we believe that when you get married you stay married unless there's situations obviously that warrant a a biblical grounds for divorce we believe things that are old fashioned quote unquote and you're right they're old fashioned why because they've been around for thousands of years because God's spoken we believe these things church and these things have never been popular look at me it's never going to be popular and I know some of you might think, well, we want the United States to become a Christian nation again. Let me tell you, we never have been a Christian nation. And at the end of the day, let me tell you, let me promise you, we're not about the entire state becoming Christian, because that's not right either. That's not fair. That's happened in the past where Constantine made the national religion Christianity, and it backfired. It backfired. Why? Because they forced people to go to church. They forced people to convert. So you get saved, you get killed. That is wrong. Let me promise you, our message has never been popular. But let me look at me when I say this, when I tell you this. But our message has always been true. It's always been true. I love when uh, history catches up to God. Don't you love that? Our science catches up to God? Like they catch up to him, they're like, hey, we found this out, and God's like, called it. Knew about it the whole entire time. And that's the way it happens over and over and over again. Because let me tell you something, following Christ, we really need to understand, has a cost. It costs John his life. And can you imagine some of his followers saying, John, cool it on the Herod thing. John, you're going to lose your head over this. Hey, John, calm down. It's not that serious. John said, I got a word from the Lord. Like a fire burning in me, I've got a word from the Lord. Now, here's what I don't want you to do. Look at me. Look at me because I love you. Look at me. I love you. You're going to get on your sister in law's Facebook page. So let me tell you, Tina, you shacking up that boy, he ain't your husband. Uh, You know what I mean? Like you can get on there and unload 65 characters, amen, thinking I'm going to tell you what's what. Let me tell you something. That is not what the Bible is saying here. Not what the Bible is saying here. It's not about that. What the Bible is saying is that we should hold our leaders accountable for their actions. I don't care if they're Democrat. I don't care if they're Republican. I don't care all of them. Let me tell you something. There's no salvation come from the White House. It's just not. We should hold them all accountable. I don't care what party you believe in or what party you have alliance to. We hold everyone accountable to the word of God, not to their party, not to our constitution. We hold it to the the law of the land that is higher than the law of the land. Nobody is above the law. Nobody is above the Bible. Nobody is above it and says, well, I can do what I want. No, you can't, sir. No, you can't, ma'am. Now, you might think, well, Pastor Nick, what if my sister-in-law, my brother-in-law, whoever it is, my cousin twice removed, what my, you know, Bobby or Shay or whoever they are, what if they are claiming to be a believer and they are living in a life that is against the word of God then your Christian obligation is to out of grace and truth confront them with the truth full of grace and full of truth confront them with the truth in a loving Christ-like way doesn't mean when you're eating Thanksgiving dinner hey I heard you've been sleeping around How's that going for you? Doesn't mean you do that, church. It means out of grace and truth and full of those things, we confront people because we love them. We love them. We love them. You do it out of the right manner and the right characteristics. You do it because you love them. And if they refuse to hear you, guess what? You say, okay, I tried. You don't delete them on Facebook. You don't block them, cut them out of your family tree. No, you do life with them still. And there will come a day, guess what, where they will hit rock bottom and then their ears will be turned up. And you say, do you know why God says for us not to live like this? Because this is what happens. You don't write in there saying, I told you so. And I'll tell you what's often worked for me in the past, the times I've been successful. I haven't always been successful. I mean, I've been deleted off Facebook more times than I can count. I've been flipped off in Walmart more times than I can count. You laugh, I'm telling the truth. I always tell people, you know you're headed down a dark road and you delete your pastor off all social media accounts. I, I can guarantee you they ain't making good choices. Let me tell you something. You might unfollow me and I might unfollow you or Bryce, vice versa. You can't unfollow Christ because he always sees. You can't block him because he always knows. But the truth of the matter is, what's always helped me is when I shared my failures. When you share with them, say, hey, I've been where you're at. I've done the things you've done. And let me tell you something. It left me dry. It left me feeling empty. It took everything from me. And in the moment, it felt real good. Tell them the truth. Say, sin feels real good in the moment. But afterwards, it ate away at my soul. And they're going to look at you and say, well, well how, how, did you, how did you get out? What happened? What changed? And you share the gospel with them. Say, Christ changed me. I used to be lonely until I found companionship with the one who never leaves me or forsakes me. I used to try to get high all the time because I had this coping anxiety that stayed with me and stayed with me and stayed with me until I found the one who is the Prince of Peace. I'm telling you guys, we have to find an on-ramp to sharing the gospel, not take people and throw them off the bridge onto the on-ramp. You have to find those on-ramps in life. You're thinking, hey, I've got this opportunity me to share the gospel. And to go even more into this, guys, we have to be open with what we feel and what we think. Emily gets kind of frustrated with me, and I love her to death, but she knows this is true, that I like to debate. If you don't know this about me, I do like to debate. Some of you nodding your head, you know. I like to play Mario Kart as well, just if you need that for my bio. Uh, I like to debate. Now, when I say debate, I mean under the right circumstances, debate in a loving way, exchange ideas. Now, I don't like to argue, but I do like to debate. And so for me personally, I have a philosophy. I have a, a terms about my social media page where if I see something on somebody's page I don't like, I won't comment. I won't do it. Like I saw somebody share something this week that I knew blatantly was a lie. Like, I knew it. It was talking about a pro-choice movement type thing. And I knew, I could read it, I could tell blatantly they had no clue what they were talking about. But I didn't comment. God sanctified these ten little piggies, amen. He pulled them back and said, not today, Satan. You know what I'm saying? I wanted to turn them loose, like barking dogs. But God said no. So I don't comment on other people's pages. But I'll tell you what I will do. This is me personally. If I share an article or I share a post or something on my playground, amen. you come to my playground and play, we're going to play. <laughs> and I will debate very, very good with you as much as I can, showing respect and making sure I understand their view, but also, once again, I don't go to their playground, I play on my playground and share my views and opinions and my thoughts. Some of y'all know that if on social media, that's what I try to do. If I'm very passionate and believe in something, I will share it, talk about it. But I don't send it to people or tag people in it, hey, just so you know. Uh, You know, I don't do that. Because that's not how you win people to the cause. That's not how you win people to the cause. But if you have a brother or sister in here, like I look around this room, if I find out one of these men is doing something they shouldn't do within their marriage. If I find out maybe one of them is, let's say, viewing pornography or being verbally abusive to their wife or physically abusive to their wife, you can bet your bottom dollar that me and some of these men in this church will confront them as their brother in Christ and say this should not be happening. And there's some of you thinking, that's an invasion of my prophecy. No, that's called guarding the flock of God. And you might be like, that's not right. Then you've never been loved well. When I first started, when I first started um, dating Emily, Russ, my father-in-law, noticed that I didn't know how to communicate to women. Isn't that love? He didn't say it like that. He said it full of grace. But I grew up in a house full of boys. I grew up with Pat and Thomas where we showed our love by saying, you look stupid. Nice shirt. Where'd you get that, baby gap? Uh, you know what I mean? Like We grew up where you, you showed you love and care by attacking people. Women don't like that. You know what I mean? Like, women don't like to be cut and made fun of and said things over and over and over again. Because guess what? It literally takes them down. Guys, like, it builds you up like, yeah, they love me. I can tell because they hate me. <laughs> That's how guys are. And so Russ kind of noticed that, and we had lunch. I don't forget it. Uh, I think it was at uh, Midtown Market. And he was like, you just need to work on how you talk to my daughter, your wife. You need to work on that. And I was like, what do you mean? He's like, let's just talk about this. And he was right. Now, I could have walked away from that thinking, man, i got a stupid father-in-law. I ain't never going to have lunch with him again, see if I come around again. And I could have drove a wedge between our entire family and said, he doesn't love me well, he doesn't care, he doesn't understand, he did not want what's best for me. But you know what I did? I, I, I pulled in closer. because so I thought, this is a man whose life I want to replicate, who everybody in his family loves each other. Nobody's going to jail. A sheriff doesn't show up at their family reunions. A sheriff shows up at our family reunions. I mean, I want my life to look like their pattern, so I'm going to listen to what he has to say. Why? Because he knows better than I do because he's got many more winners behind him than I do. You don't get offended. You come in closer and say, what are you trying to tell me? Let me learn from you. That's discipleship. That's discipleship and that's what we really need to understand is what Christ is after us to do. I said all that to say this. I said a lot of extra stuff. Wisdom trails, amen. But I'll tell you two things that stick out to me that you probably skipped right over, but it it makes a big difference to me. Verse number 29 and verse number 30. Verse number 29 says, when his disciples heard of it, this is when they heard John had been killed, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. If you choose to be buried in a traditional burial plot, you will have six or seven of your closest friends that will pack you. And I tell you what's the worst for a minister. You get to see a lot of things that people don't get to see. And you would not believe the amount of funerals I've done where they couldn't find pallbearers. You would not believe how many funerals I've done over the years where literally they're going through the crowd. Hey, will you pack the casket? Hey, will you come up here? And you, you look at this, this, this motley group of men and women sometimes. Who are there and they look like they don't know each other from Adam. They're thinking, Who are you? I'm her cousin. Who are you? I just pumped her gas like yesterday. Like literally, they have no idea who each other is. These are the people who will pack your body to its final resting place, who will lay your body in the grave. Let me tell you something. I know it's hard being adults, I know it's really hard having friendship with adults, I know it's really hard doing life together. But let me tell you how beautiful is this that even though John's message wasn't popular, even though he lost his head to this tyrant of a man, even though literally he was considered to be a rebel and an outcast in his society, his disciples came and they buried him anyway. Because they loved him and they cared for him and he mattered to them. May we all live such lives that when it comes time, to us be put in the ground. There's numerous, my people, and we have to ourselves weed out people to get down to the best of the best of the best who put us in the ground. Let it not be so for us. Side note here, wisdom trail, look at me. There is a 100% chance you're going to die. I've done the research, 100% chance. Nobody gets out of this alive. Look at me. I love you enough to tell you this. If, you're a, if you are the chief provider of your family, if you're somebody in here, you're the breadwinner, I don't care if you're a man or woman, get life insurance. Get life insurance. some way. I don't, I'm not getting enough money out of this. Your family needs you to take care of them. It is a sad, sad day when you get on Facebook and three out of the four articles are GoFundMe accounts because people have not been financially responsible to take care of their families. That's not a popular message, but it's a gospel truth. Take care of your family. It's cheap. It Cost you a couple, couple. Literally, you can do it for the price of getting pizzas a couple of nights a week. Take care of your family. I'm telling you guys, it's a sad. Oh, don't get me started. That's a whole nother. Nick quit, quit, quit. Point number three. My last point. Verse number thirty. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all they had done and taught. You know, what I love about this. We had. The commissioning, we had the calling, and now we've got the last part, the accountability, which is kind of what we've hit on the entire sermon. Find people in your life that hold you accountable. Find people in your life that hold you accountable. There are, there are a few men in this church that I've done discipleship groups with. Let me tell you something. They have the right to hold me accountable. They have the right to speak into my life. They have the right to, if they chose to, if they wanted to, I have no problem giving them my phone saying, go through it, whatever you want to go through here's my email passwords, here's this, who's that. Some of you are thinking, I can't believe you're doing that. No, let me tell you something. It keeps you guarded for all the right reasons. Because there's a lot of sin out there. Some of you, you let your teenager have a phone with the internet and you think they only Google cheat codes. How foolish are we? You might say, well, they've got their own phone. They can't have anything. They're a child. What about invasion of privacy? They have no privacy. They're a a child. Now, let me take that back. They have some privacy. I'm not saying no privacy. But what I am saying is, hold them accountable. Because guess what? It's a dark world out there. In marriage, you know what we do? Me and Emily hold each other accountable. We don't make big purchases without each other. She don't just pull in one day and I bought her a car. Because I want to stay married. You know what I mean? Like we don't go out and do silly dumb stuff and just tell hey, I just want to let you know about this, just checking in. No, we're together. We're one. We hold each other accountable. If I walk in the door, there's a nine out of ten chance she's coming behind me. Why? Or I'm coming behind her. Why? Because we're together. We said vows. We don't just share a bed. We share a life. We don't just share a life. We share bank accounts. We don't just share genetics that runs around. We share everything. Why? Because we hold each other accountable. Well, I don't want to do that. Then you shouldn't have got married. Because that's what it is. And in church, when you become a member of a church, you're saying, I'm going to be held accountable. So I pray that we'll hold each other accountable in sharing the gospel. I pray we hold each other accountable when it comes to doing things in our church. Why? Because at the end of the day, if you don't hold somebody accountable, I can promise you there's going to be slack. There's going to be slack. How do I know? Let's, we all have been there. I've been there too. When your boss goes a long period of time without checking in on you, you're playing Gallica on the clock, amen. You do whatever you want to do. But when your boss comes in or your boss comes over, your department is looking over your shoulder, you're sitting up straight, got them reports thinking, yeah, I'm doing all my work. Because it's good to have somebody hold you accountable. It's really good to have somebody hold you accountable. And when it comes to the church, let me tell you something. I love this. The men came back to Jesus and reported everything they'd done. Because one day, you know the truth? I will be held accountable for how I pastored this church. I will stand before Christ and be responsible for how I've pastored this church. Your elders here, they will be held accountable for how they've led this congregation. They'll be held accountable. For you dads in here, you'll be held accountable for how you took care of your family. If you mothers in here, you'll be held accountable for how you took care of your kids. It's literally a pyramid down of accountability. Because you're responsible. And I'm responsible. And if you don't take care of your stuff, let me tell you something, nobody else is going to. Accountability is a good thing. It's a God thing. It's a great thing. And it keeps people safe because you don't hold people accountable. You know what happens? Scandal. When you don't hold people accountable, you know what happens? Divorce. When you don't hold people accountable, you know what happens? Child abuse. I'm telling you, this is serious stuff. When you don't hold people accountable, pornography. When you don't hold people accountable, tons and tons of sin that should never ever start it but every sin that leads to those major big problems always starts because somebody didn't dig the seed up yesterday me and russ we dug out a big bush donnie i cut it all back i could have left it there it was a big stump but you know what i knew and what russ knew if we leave the stump there it's going to start going back so you know what we had to do? We had to dig out that shovel, take it and say a couple cuss words and ask for forgiveness, amen. I did, Russ didn't, he never cusses. Uh, you know, he had to stomp and kick, get mud all over my Crocs, had to lock them in four-wheel drive. Some of y'all know what I'm talking about. I had to just get slobber, knocking, mad with that thing, hitting, hitting it, and digging it. And I got mad, got frustrated, but guess what? I took it out, threw it over the fence. And I felt real good because there was a big hole, wherever it used to be, right? Filled it in, that stump ain't growing back because I had to get to the root it took a lot of hard work, but I had to get down to the root, had to break it loose, had to get it back to where it originally was supposed to be, and guess what, I ain't going to grow no more, because we had to get to the root. And how do we get to the root? You had to hold each other accountable and get to the root. I've lost many great men, even in my own personal life, because I didn't want somebody to hold them accountable. Hey, brother, where you been? Ah, you know, then Life happens. I ain't supposed to be a church. Come on, bro. Guess what? They will. They'll leave here and go somewhere else so they can be a face in the crowd because they don't want somebody to hold them accountable. But I love you too much. I hold you accountable. I check on you. I check in on you. Because that's the cost. I know the cost is too grave, and the number is too high. But let me tell you something. That is the cost. And everything has a cost.